This is Jim Fleming. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Stuart Heights or more about our class, or if you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can do so at teachings.jim314.com. Enjoy the lesson. This is going to be the most difficult Sunday school lesson to teach in the history of all my classes, because every time I pan the room, it's going to be squirrel right there. That's just... Here we go. All right. Good morning, everybody. All right. So if you got your hand out, we'll go ahead and get started this morning. This is week three of Jesus in the Jewish Holidays, and uh, we will finish up 2015 Sunday School today as well. So you got next week off, just so you know. No Sunday School next week, and we'll start back on January the 3rd, hot and heavy with 2016. I have to remember to write the new date right, right? All right, so this is week three, the last week of this series, uh, and in week one we looked at the Jewish calendar. And we saw that it is a what kind of calendar? We'll do a quick review. Anybody remember the word? Lunisolar. Yes, L-U-N-I-S-O-L-A-R. Lunisolar calendar. So it's got a component of the moon cycles, uh, and it's also got a component of the sun. Because uh, if you just stick with the moon, you're going to end up with Christmas in July, and that gets weird, and you know we don't want to do that. So they would insert a leap month every so often. And uh, that keeps everything straight. So then last week's lesson, we looked at the eight major holidays in the Old Testament. And we looked at Leviticus 23, which is probably not where you thought the most exciting stuff in the world is. But it's a pretty neat picture, as we'll see today, of the history of God's plan of redemption. It's the whole thing. The whole thing is in Leviticus 23, which is shockingly amazing to me that we have these things in these different places. And then today, we're going to look at the prophetic nature of each one of those uh, calendar events and how Jesus is involved in their fulfillment. So in my version of the notes, I have different pictures and things to help me remember to tell stories. And one of the best examples that I ever got for dealing with Bible prophecy was from Terry Brown. And he taught me that Bible prophecy is a lot like looking at mountains. And that's your next blank. It's a lot like looking at mountains. And if you've ever seen mountains, and you all have since you live in the wonderful state of Tennessee, uh, then you know that what's up close is very, very clear, and what's in the distance is a little foggy. And Bible prophecy is like this a lot of times. When somebody will make a prophetic statement, it is really obvious to see what is happening very close in time, but the farther out you get, the more difficult it is to see and the more difficult it is to understand how that's going to be implemented. At the same time, there can be different waves of implementation of Bible prophecy. So things that are literally true... In Leviticus 23, as far as the way that God told the Jews to celebrate these feasts and remember these things, they were to literally do them. They were to literally have a feast. But they have prophetic fulfillment in a different wave later on. So we'll see some of that as we go through uh, today. So remember the mountains example. So the title of this lesson is The Jewish Messiah. So who's the Jewish Messiah? Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, right? Jesus answered that clearly, very, very, very clearly in John 4. Um, so if you weren't sure who that was, that's all about Jesus. We're not going to miss Jesus. It's about Jesus today, okay? All right, so we'll roll through these eight different holidays, and we'll talk about the Sabbath first. So what did Jesus think about the Sabbath? All right, so if you want to know what Jesus thought about the Sabbath, go to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 in your Bibles. So 
So when was the Sabbath created? You guys remember? We talked about this last week. On what day? Seven. So we did not wait very far before the Sabbath came about. So, And who created it? God created it, right? <clears throat> so in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, Jesus is talking and he tries to explain to his disciples you know, what the purpose of the Sabbath is or who is made for. So what does it say in verse 27? Right. So, so, so who was the Sabbath made for? Man, which is a pretty straightforward answer, right? So, so what does this not mean? It does not mean that God created the Sabbath on the seventh day because God needed to rest. God was not tired at the end of His creation, which is amazing. He created everything, and He still wasn't tired, right? We get the kids ready for church in the morning, and we're exhausted. And he creates the whole universe, and Julie mostly gets the kids ready in the morning, and she's exhausted. Yeah, right? I thought that was what the look was for. Was that, I missed it. That's okay. Don't worry about it. I got distracted by the suit once again. <clears throat> I'm going to blame it on the suit, Justin. We're going to have to put uh, some type of a picture associated with this podcast so that people listening all over the country know exactly what I was distracted by this morning. So we'll have to do that. All right, so... So how does Jesus fit into the Sabbath then? Well, he answers that question in the very next verse. And what does the next verse say, Shelby? It says, Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Right. So, and who's the Son of Man? That's Jesus. So Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, which is fantastic. So not only does the Father care about our rest, Christ cares about our rest and governs over that which that's a beautiful picture. That's a beautiful picture. And, and this is the holiday. This is the festival. This is the feast. This is the thing that occurs most often because every seven days is a Sabbath. Every seven days is a Sabbath. Every seven days is a Sabbath. So the first event on the calendar, and if you flip over to the back of your handout real quick, um, this is going to be um, the resource that I was looking for. I, I bought a book. I don't know, nine months ago, six months ago, something like that. And I've read through it a couple times, Jesus and the Jewish festivals. And there's a lot of neat pictures in here, uh, but that one is the best because I think it is a very clean example of the Jewish calendar and where the months are and how they line up to ours and the different festivals that occur throughout the, uh, the calendar year. And their calendar year begins at the very top there. We're in the, kind of in the middle of our march, Nisan or Abib. Uh, and the first event up is Passover. So, I wanted to ask this question. I don't know how to ask this question. Uh, does this really interest anybody as far as, this has been really interesting to learn about the calendar, and this is pretty cool. I mean, I mean like you really want to know more about this. There's more to learn and be interested about. Anybody? Raise your hand. Yes? Cool. I thought you might be. So, I've read the book now. And I have the Kindle version, which is where I got that picture. So, I don't read the book. So, Merry Christmas. Awesome. So, Passover. This is Nisan the 14th. So, the modern Passover is, a, is a, a really expanded version of the New Testament Passover. So, if you have Jewish friends and you ask them, what do you do at Passover? It is a long list of stuff. It is not a simple thing. It is a very, very involved 
You plan for weeks, you prepare, it is, it is a lot of stuff. In the New Testament time, it was a big deal as well. It wasn't quite as big a deal from a what you do inside your home. It was a lot of travel involved. Um, I don't know if you remember in uh, Luke chapter 2, uh, when Jesus is at the temple. Remember when he was 12 years old and he's at the temple? Why were his parents at the temple? Right. They had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, as a good, observant Jewish family would have done every single year. So on this holiday, you travel. Whew. Okay. So that's a lot of work. And some of you are going, oh, great. Wonderful. Yeah, I like to stay home. Yep. Not on Passover. You get up and you move on Passover. Because Passover was a celebration of God delivering the people of Egypt, the people of Egypt, delivering the, peop- the people of Israel out from under the bondage of the Egyptians. This is the suit. That's what it is. <clears throat> um, I love you, man. And, uh, and there were four I will statements in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. And this is kind of what the, the, the New Testament Passover was centered around. God made four different I will statements. He said, I will bring you out, I will rescue you, I will redeem you, and I will take you. And corresponding to these four I will statements were four cups of wine that were drunk at the Jewish Passover. So you would remember and you would drink a cup of wine. You would have a part of the meal, you'd drink a cup of wine. After the meal was over, you drink a cup of wine. You would celebrate and sing hymns, and you drink a cup of wine. Four cups of wine. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing to remember about Jewish wine, about wine in the New Testament, it is it is not the same as what you can go buy in the store today. They would call that what you could buy in the store today would be called uh, uh, strong drink or strong wine. The Jewish wine that you see at meals, at weddings, at celebrations would be cut one-ninth of that. So they would pour, generally, one cup of wine and nine cups of water. That way it would be, the flavor was there, but there was no way in the world that you were going to get drunk from this. This was a celebratory, good-tasting thing, but this was not a, uh, let's go get staggering out of Passover. Not, not, not quite the same thing, so FYI there. Now... A lot of people think, uh, so if you go to Matthew 26, let's go to Matthew 26 for a sec. I had somebody ask me one time that uh, the way that we do communion here at Stewart Heights is we typically, uh, the, the, the bread will be served and then somebody will say the blessing over the bread and we eat the bread. And then the juice is served, and then somebody will say the blessing over the juice, and then we drink the juice. And somebody asked me one time why I thanked God for this third cup of redemption. I said, well, Exodus 6. That's why. And they said, well, I don't understand that. I said, well, it's the way the Jews do the Passover. The, when Jesus, in Matthew 26, is talking to his disciples... After they finish the by the time you finish the meal, two cups of wine have been drunk. At the end of the meal comes the third cup. And the third cup is where Jesus says what? This cup is what? My blood. Right? And and there's something that what does he say? Can you read that section for me? God and his people is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. 
Mark my words. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Right. The fourth cup is the cup where Jesus, where, where the Old Testament uh, documents that God is saying, I will take you out. So I'm going to remove you and take you to another place. And what Jesus is saying is that I'm not drinking that fourth cup until we do this later on. So it's interesting to note that Jesus starts the Passover here, but he doesn't technically finish it. It's an unfinished Passover. And there's all kinds of theological ramifications for this because we're living in the middle of this unfinished Passover. But there's this meal that we're going to eat one day. Y'all heard of this one? Yeah, and it's going to finish it. And at that point, Jesus is going to drink that fourth cup. And he will conclude that Passover, which is pretty neat because the Passover lamb concludes the Passover that the Passover lamb started because it was all about the Passover lamb way back in Exodus, which is really neat stuff. There's a lot going on in these couple of verses where Jesus is talking about, I'm going to drink this last cup later on. All right, I'm going to do a real, real quick squirrel, and I'm going to come right back to the holidays. How old was Jesus when he died? 33-ish? How do you know that? Started his ministry in his 30s, when he was about 30, right? So Luke 3.23 says he was about 30 when he began. And how do we know? How do we know he did three years of ministry? What's that? I think that's in Luke Nowhere in the Bible does it say he had a three-year ministry. We think he had about a three-year ministry because John documents three different Passovers that he celebrated after he began his ministry. The reason we think we know how old Jesus was is because of the Jewish calendar. So all those little, oh, it was about the time of the Passover. It was about the time of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It was about the time of the First Fruits. All those mark time as you go through the Gospels so that we could have a chronology of how things actually fit together. You've heard of a synopsis of the Gospels where they line them all up and this happened here. And The only reason that's possible is because of the Jewish calendar. Because somebody understood that all this stuff actually happened in a calendar system and we know where things are, which is pretty helpful for us. Does that make sense? All right. Squirrel trip is over. We're back to the jacket. Here we go. <clears throat> So 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. The last part of that says, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So in case you weren't sure, Jesus is the Passover what? Lamb. lamb. Yes, He is the Passover Lamb. <coughs> he was killed for us. And there's all kinds... I mean, if you, look at, if you look and study Jesus on the cross... Every aspect of his death and those events leading up to his death was all exactly the way the Passover lamb had to be killed. When was, y'all remember that um, the, the Roman crucifixion, there was a little step that the, the prisoners could stand on to push up to breathe so they wouldn't suffocate too quickly because they wanted to extend the life. Well, to order to, to speed up death, they would break the legs of the prisoners so they couldn't push up and they would just sag and they'd suffocate to death. Horrible, horrible death. When did they, when did they break Jesus' legs? They didn't. You know why? Passover lamb could not have a broken bone. If the Passover lamb had a broken bone, it was no longer qualified to be the Passover. 
One of the ways that the Old Testament priests would check to make sure that the lamb was actually a living sacrifice was to cut the lamb and to see blood come out. And when you saw blood come out, that was a validation that this was a living sacrifice. This was an appropriate, acceptable sacrifice. You remember what the Romans did? They cut his side. And what happened? Blood and water came out. And that blood was the evidence that this was a living sacrifice, that this was an acceptable sacrifice. All these different things, all these different things show that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the true, right, good Passover that stood in our place and died for us. So then we come to the unleavened bread. So what is sin? How is sin represented in the, in the Old Testament sometimes? As leaven, as this yeast, as this rising agent, right? And Jesus fits into this feast because he had no sin. Jesus is the unleavened bread. Now, when you are... So I don't, I don't cook bread. Does anybody happen to cook bread? Anybody cook bread? Yes. Does, have you ever cooked leavened bread? Yes. Have you ever cooked unleavened bread? Mistakenly, right? Does it look differently in the baking process? What, what looks different? One is flat and one rises. Okay? Unleavened bread doesn't rise. Think about the theological implications. It looks dead. It doesn't rise. This is a picture of, guess what, of Jesus? The death and the burial. It doesn't rise. You see this? It's there. Don't worry. Now, when the Jews make it, they put stripes on the top of it. Crisscross in stripes. Because that's to point toward the abuse that the lamb is going to take. And yet they reject Jesus as the Passover lamb, which... Just, it's the saddest thing in the world. It's absolutely the saddest thing in the world. But the Feast of the Unleavened Bread represents Jesus' burial. Then we come to the first fruits. Now go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. So the first fruits, when you're, if you ever harvested any crops, the first piece of fruit or vegetable that comes out of the ground for a particular plant. Has anybody ever done any planting? Any planting? Darla, you've done some planting in your life? Just a little? What do you got in the ground right now? Anything? Turnip greens. Spinach. Anything good? All of that is good. Awesome. Swiss chard. I wouldn't even know what that looked like. So I, I know what turnip greens are, so we'll go with that. Okay. So turnip greens come up out of the ground, and, and the first piece of turnip green that you think you can actually consume comes up and, and you, you get that and uh, what's, what else is going to come off of that same plant? More turnip You sure? Yes. Yeah. You're positive that more turnip greens are going to come off of the plant that first originally produced turnip greens. Okay. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 21. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So fallen asleep means what in the Bible? You're dead. For since by man came by death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. So Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. These words that the Bible picks are not accidental. It is not accidental that we are using an Old Testament feast term. 
This is meant to point you back to the Old Testament feast of the first fruits. So if the first fruits rose from the dead, what are all the other fruits that are connected to that vine going to do? We're going to rise from the dead. This is fantastic. This is good news for us. Jesus is the first fruits of the dead. If you had to pick some aspect of Jesus' life that this could possibly represent, what do you think this might be? Maybe the resurrection? Yeah. Maybe the resurrection. Because Paul takes this concept, this very, very old Old Testament concept, and he says this is actually about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So then we come to Pentecost. Now, I want you to flip to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. So Pentecost is a celebration of the giving of the law. And if you think about the book of Exodus, so Exodus starts and they're in Egypt, they're under bondage. There's several chapters of uh, Moses giving Pharaoh ultimatums and the plagues coming. And then we leave Exodus in the early teens and they get out in the desert and they wander for just a little bit. And then Exodus 19 begins, God has called Moses up onto the mountain And from Exodus 19 all the way through the rest of the book, just 20-some-odd chapters of God and Moses interacting about the law, which is a lot of conversation. 20 20 chapters of talking with God. And there's a couple times where Moses comes down off the mountain and interacts with the people of Israel. And chapter 32 is one of those. So look um, look at verses 25 through 28. This is not a typical Sunday school story that you would teach your children. Okay? So now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whosoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about... How many? 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So this is while God is giving the law. He is giving instructions to His people so that they will be healthy and that they will survive because they did not know how to be a nation. He's giving them the law. They rebel during the process of giving the law, which is actually a foreshadowing of the whole rest of the Old Testament. Right? This cycle of obedience and disobedience and obedience and disobedience. This was a small taste of what was coming up next. So how many people died during the giving of the law? About 3,000 men. All right, let's fast forward to Acts chapter 2. So what happens in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit comes, right? Who preaches a sermon? You remember? Yes, Peter preaches this fantastic sermon. I mean, it's just made some people angry. It also made some people convicted. And and some really amazing stuff happened. And in verses 40 and 41, this is kind of his invitation. It says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about... 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, Pentecost in the Old Testament was the time of the giving of the law. And the law 
What, what, was, what, is, um, what does Romans 8 talk about the law brings? Anybody know? The law brings death. That's right. And the Spirit brings what? Life. Same number, a couple thousand years apart. Pretty neat stuff. See, when these numbers show up, it's not, it's just, it's just some random thing. No, no, no. It's, it, we're pointing back to something else. There's a connection here. It's not an accident that, that Jesus, here's your blank, that Jesus is the testimony of Pentecost. Because the law pointed people to Christ. That's what the testimony was about. When the Spirit comes, the Spirit testifies of who? Of Christ. Right? So both are pointing toward Jesus Christ. He's the object of the law and the object of the Spirit's testimony. So Pentecost. So you have, you have with Passover the death of the lamb. You have with the unleavened bread, the, uh, or the sacrifice of the lamb. You have the unleavened bread, the death. You have with first fruits the raising. You have with Pentecost the testimony, this giving of the Spirit. Now trumpets... I have in my notes, the Feast of Trumpets is just stupid easy to see Jesus in. Right? I mean, trumpets. Have we not? We've heard this one before, right? So, Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes on the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with the sound of a... Trumpet. Yes, there's going to be a sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Quite simply, Jesus calls believers to be with Him. This, is, this one is absolutely, completely and totally all about Jesus. He is calling His believers to be with Him. If you have any Jewish friends, this is actually Rosh Hashanah. Um, this is their, their celebration, Rosh Hashanah. A lot of neat stuff that happens today on that. All right, then we come to the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement was not actually a feast day. It was a fasting day. This was a day where you afflicted your soul, where you remembered how sinful you were, and you prayed that the high priest would do a good job. So this was uh, uh, the whole congregation of Israel would stand outside the temple, and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And the people would wait. They would wait to see if the sacrifice was accepted. If the sacrifice was accepted, it was a great time of celebration. And if it wasn't, they pulled that high priest out and they sent somebody else in. Because the atonement still had to be made. The atonement had to be made. Now, what is? we talked about this a couple months ago when we were talking about the offices of Christ. So Christ has three different offices that we talked about. Three different titles or job functions that He does for us in the past while he was on the earth and then still today. Y'all remember what those were? First was prophet, right? So he's a prophet. He spoke truth about what was going to be happening in the future. He serves as a, a priest, right? He can sacrifice directly to God and then as a, a king. Yeah, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. There's none other like him. So here we see that we have a better high priest. Jesus is our high priest. In the Day of Atonement, I don't have to have somebody now that goes every single year and makes a sacrifice. And we sit and wait and hope, will this be accepted or will it not be accepted? No, no. I have somebody who's already made a sacrifice once and for all, for all kind. Now, one of the things that the Jews saw at the Day of Atonement is that they saw that the Day of Atonement, that their enemy was vanquished for that period. 
And a lot of New Testament scholars believe that this is a prophetic look forward to Jesus' second coming where he will begin the process of vanquishing his opponents. I think this one's a little bit of a stretch. Uh, I kind of got to keep an open hand on this one. You may have a different perspective if you do. <coughs> Fantastic. If you Google what does Day of Atonement mean for the New Testament believer, you will get a billion different options on this. A smorgasbord, a, a salad bar of options to which you can choose from or sneeze on however you see fit. But it's, there's, there's a lot of different things that can happen here. Now, the reason a lot of people think this is the second coming is if you line all these things up chrono- chronologically, after the trumpets, the snatching away, the next thing that happens on the calendar is the second coming of Christ. So a lot of force-fitting takes place sometimes to make it work, but it might be, it might not be. But the last of the holidays is the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Tabernacles were, is a remembrance of when the Jews lived in these little huts. You remember this? We talked about this last week. They lived in these little huts, and it was a, is a reminder. Every single year, you lived in these huts for a week. Ooh, vacation. Right? You got to travel to Jerusalem for the Passover, and you got to live in a hut. Sign me up for the Jewish calendar, right? So this is a reminder that the Israelites, when they fled, that God provided even in tough situations. Now, if, if the Day of Atonement is the second coming, what's the next event after the second coming? On God's calendar. You remember this? What happens after the second coming? Some, there's some ruling and reigning with Jesus to be done, right? Yes, sign me up. Just for your record, I have called the Biltmore. I got dibs on it. That's my house. So, I'm just saying. There might be room. Uh, Julie can hang out. That's cool. I'm good with that. <laughs> they sit, the, the scripture says there won't be marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. It doesn't say anything about the millennial reign. So, I'm expecting good relationships here, okay? thousand years of good times. Um, so, so a lot of modern scholars feel like this is where Jesus will tabernacle with believers. Go to Ezekiel 37. I remember the last time I gave you a, a verse to look up in Ezekiel. But Ezekiel 37. And then like all of Zechariah 14. There's some, there's some strong words. There's some bold talk in Zechariah 14 about what's going to happen in the future. But Ezekiel 37 Verses 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28. Who's got it? Ezekiel's in the Old Testament. Dave, you got it? Starting in 24. 24 to 28, yes, sir. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they will. They shall dwell in the land uh, that they that I have given uh, to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwell. And they shall dwell there. They, their children, their children's children, forever. And my ser- my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a <clears throat> make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and uh, multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Does anybody have a different word? For what? Sanctuary? Tabernacle. Yeah, I will set my tabernacle in the midst of them forever. Keep going. Yeah, my tabernacle also ah, shall uh, be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Their nation, the, the nations 
also will know that I am the Lord. The, uh, uh, the Lord sanctify uh, Israel uh, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Excellent. So a lot of people think that this is looking forward to the millennial kingdom where we are ruling and reigning in Christ, where there's a tabernacle, where the, the process is, is complete again, uh, where he rules and reigns on heaven and earth. So this may be what's described in Ezekiel 37 and Zechariah 14. But these things all point back to Jesus. It is not a, uh, it is not a, a, a calendar where it's a bunch of secular stuff. Everything on their calendar points back to Christ in some way, shape, or form. Did I put the summary at the bottom on that front page for you guys? I did. Good. Hebrew for Christians has this fantastic little summary of their calendar in the seasons look. So the spring is all about deliverance because Passover and Pentecost are all about being delivered from oppression. Summer, I didn't talk about the 17th of Tammuz or Tisha B'Av, um, but I'll let you guys go look those up. But those are preparatory feasts and celebrations. Those are looking forward to something that is coming. In the fall, you have the trumpets and the Day of Atonement and tabernacles. Those are about repenting from your sin. And in the winter, you have Hanukkah and Purim. Uh, you know what Hanukkah is, right? That's the deliverance of the, the Jews from whom? Remember? Yeah, the Maccabees. The, the Maccabeans stood up and they rebelled. Uh, and then Purim is the celebratory look at what book of the Bible? Esther. Esther, right. It's all about Esther. It's about that deliverance from the king who was the oppressor, and God saved his people uh, in just a spectacular way, spectacular way. So, so there's these themes as you go throughout the year of deliverance, of preparation, of repentance, and then of victory. So if you go back to Leviticus 23, I think you can actually see the story of the entire plan of redemption in Leviticus 23 from start to finish, which is a pretty amazing thing to bury it in the middle of Leviticus, which is crazy stuff. So you say, Jim, what's the point of all this? All right, a couple things. The Jewish holidays are about who? Jesus. Jesus, yes. So please make sure we've got that down pat. They are about Jesus. So I would encourage us to make Jesus the centerpiece of our holidays. Um, We're five days away from Christmas. Can I get an amen for make Jesus the centerpiece of your holiday? Amen. All right, good. Thank you. I thought that would resonate really well, but I guess not, yeah? Um, now, just so you know, when you go and look at the nativity scene in the sanctuary, Jesus is not there. Jesus is at our house. The elf on the shelf is protecting him right now. He will be delivered, he will be delivered to the manger on Christmas morning by our family and we will post it on Facebook as an as a evidence of that deliverance. But um, Jesus shows up on Christmas Day. So for those of you that have put Jesus in your mangers before Christmas Day, he didn't show up before Christmas. It's his birthday. You don't show up before your birthday. So it is what it is. All right. So make Jesus the centerpiece of your holidays. Number two at the top, what's the point? Jesus completes the Jewish holidays. Remember, everything we see in the Old Testament is a shadow. It's a look forward. There's more to come. The substance is of Christ. So when you see something in the Old Testament, you're like, I don't, I don't see how that fits. Jesus is probably in there somewhere. It's probably in there somewhere. So be complete in Jesus. Have the substance of Christ. Don't settle for emptiness and shadows. Uh, and then number three, God tells his story through history. That's what the word means, his story. He tells his story through history. So this looking back as we move forward in time is a way in which we tell God's story. All right, so usually on Christmas, I have presents. So your present this year is the backside of that handout. Because 
I think that's a really cool tool to help you study the Bible as you go through. So I tried to make the picture about the same size as most of your Bibles. So you can cut that out and put that in the back of your Bible, and now you know as you go through, this is where these things occurred. This is an incredibly helpful thing to do, especially while you're reading through the New Testament. And you see these passages that talk about this feast or this festival. So that's your Christmas present. Now, I've got three more to deliver real quick. Uh, A couple folks that do a whole lot for our class. And all right. So where's Trish this morning? She's in the nursery, so we'll make sure we give Miss Trish that. It'd be great. So Miss Trish and Miss Jessica, make sure that we are fed uh, each Sunday morning. Which um, thank you very much. Uh, like with actual food, not with the stuff that comes from the scriptures. So, and then Miss Darla handles all of our Aww, prayer requests. So thank you for that very much. Um, So, Justin, your present for setting up the chairs is I'm going to make that famous. Um, We're going to post that all over Facebook and see how many shares we can get, and that'd be fantastic. Uh, And Dave Barber uh, handles all of our sound and podcasting, and his present did not come, so he will get his the first Sunday in January. All right? So thank you to all you that are here and participate. It means the world to me. I appreciate it. Um, I think 2015 was a good year. It was a good year. We got to see a lot of neat things. I'm looking forward to 2016, putting the finishing touches on the schedule for that. So remember, no Sunday school next week. And then we start back in January the 3rd, 2016. And I'm pumped about that. Another year down. Another year closer to Jesus coming back, which is a good thing. It's a good thing. So make Jesus the centerpiece of your holidays. Teach your kids about this. It is important. It is important. It is important. At the center of your tables is a weekly update. Make sure you lean in, engage, pray as a table. When you're finished praying as a table, you're dismissed.